Welcome to Changing Reels, a bi-weekly podcast that celebrates diversity in cinema, both in front of and behind the camera, by revisiting overlooked and underappreciated films and exploring their pop culture significance. My name is Courtney Small. And I'm Andrew Hathaway. Our show is hosted by the fine folks at ModernSuperior.com. We highly recommend that you visit their site, not only to discover great podcasts, but also to find links to many of the short films that we discuss in each episode. We put the links in our show notes, and you can view them for free online. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at ChangingReels.ca, and you can listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. And if you listen to us on iTunes, we'd greatly appreciate it if you give us a rating, whether you like the show or not. All feedback is good feedback. As this is the first episode of 2017, Happy New Year to all our listeners. Also, we wanted to let you know that we're going to try something a little new this year with our format. Just a slight little tweak, if you will. Each month, we're going to try and have a theme to go with our feature film selections. So this month, we'll be looking at animated films. Uh, But before we start, Andrew, how was the close of your 2016? Thankfully, non-eventful. I'm not big on family gatherings as much as I do love my family. I'm an introvert to a T. And as much as I can perform for folks if needed, I need my quiet space. And uh, I'm finally getting used to my medication that I've kind of discussed around. Uh, I have pretty severe anxiety and depression issues. So part of that I did just kind of sleep through. Thankfully, my family took no offense to that. But other than that, man, I just relaxed and dealt with all the people as best I could and was extremely happy to be back home amongst the quiet with my wife and our cats. You know what? Quiet is very good. Um, ours was not as quiet as yours leading into the Christmas break. My daughter came down with a cold. It turned out it was a, just a, a case of croup, which is pretty much a regular cold, but it has like a really bad cough. And if you don't treat it right away, he gets serious. So after 17 hours in the hospital for them to diagnose that stuff, we were able to get the treatment right away and... We thought that would be the end of our holidays, but then the furnace broke on Christmas morning, so we had two days without that, and then the whole household got sick right after Christmas, so <laughs> pretty much it's been, by the time New Year's came, it was just like, alright, 2016, you know, we're, we're done. We, we've had our fill, so. Everyone's had their own little traumas and tragedies to deal with, and uh, uh, that's terrible, obviously, everything that's happened with you and your family there. At the same time, I, it almost feels weirdly appropriate in kind of a terrible <laughs> sense well, it, to have it does. all that happen at the end of this bad year. It, it does, but then, and at the same time, what we went through that week was minuscule compared to what other families go through this time of year and, and what have you. That's so, true. And I mean, at the end of the day, we're all fine, we're all you know on the mend, but it was just one of those vacations that wasn't really a vacation. And it's good that you're keeping some perspective on all that because, like I said, my heart does go out to you, especially your daughter, I suffered from something very similar when I was younger and had to have nebulizer treatments for months. But, you know, perspective being as it is, everyone is comfortable and hopefully happy slash relatively healthy in your house now. Yeah, she's definitely feeling much better. She's pretty much pulling out every toy possible in the house, as one-year-olds <laughs> do. Uh, she's still got a bit of a cough, but overall, she's back in her own way, and everyone seems to be back of the norm, so... You know, it's it's at least we're starting off 2017 on a proper note. There you go. And there's no better way to start than with a lot of toys, whether you're one or, in my case, 32. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. 
I'm not going to lie, occasionally play with some of them myself. But that's a, <laughs> that's a story for another day. Um, so normally, we like to start each episode with a discussion on our short film selections. We've decided to keep that for 2017 moving forward because, frankly, we just enjoy talking about short films. So, Andrew, why don't you uh, kick us off with your selection? Well, it's going to tie in about as directly as any short possibly could that we've discussed before. One of the movies I was really excited to talk about when we started our podcast series was Nina Paley's uh, Sita Sings the Blues. So I decided for my short film selection, since she has an abundance of work out there to to talk about one of the first shorts I discovered after watching Sita Sings the Blues. And it's the intensely charming fetch. It's about as straightforward as you can get for a cartoon plot synopsis, basically a, uh, a bean person, uh, male or female, I will leave to the viewer to attach their own gender signifiers to it. But basically, a bean person goes out with this slightly more kidney bean-shaped dog. And as the bean person is playing with the dog, a single line in the background basically becomes a mess of perspective and shifting landscapes and the bean person is kind of going insane slowly trying to figure out how to get its dog back so this is like classic animation there's no dialogue so it plays well no matter what you speak and the inventiveness from start to finish it's like she just went through a big book of animation techniques on perspective and threw it all at the screen and it all works. Like I, I adore this short much like I adore Cedar sings the blues, but since it was an early work and you can see some of the influences here that she'll actually show in Cedar sings the blues, I figured this is possibly the best opening I could think of for the short. So what'd you think about fetch and the bean person and bean kidney bean-esque dog. I really enjoyed it. This was my first time with anything Nina Paley, so this whole episode is going to be a bunch of firsts for me, but I it reminded me a lot of, I don't know if it's the, I think it's old Looney Tunes. It might be Disney, but the, those old cartoons where you would see the character talking and then they would have the giant pencil come in. So you, you're, you're aware that there's an artist kind of manipulating these settings. And watching this film... I was amazed within the first two minutes of, the, of this four-minute short how many different ways she could exhaust the notion of perspective with a simple line on a, in a white background, right? Like, you know, you're thinking, all right, well, this is foreground here. This is a background. Oh, that changes. Now this is ceiling. It's it, it was crazy. And then I thought, well, maybe there's no way that she can sustain this for four whole minutes. And then the film just kicks it to another <laughs> level. <laughs> and it was it was just delightful to see like i could understand how that person would be going mad because i'm just following him and thinking well how did someone even think about doing this you know and part of what we're going to be discussing later on too i had that exact same thing with her feature film was just like there's so much creativity in something that seems so simple you know and it's almost deceptively so i think deceptively simple is a, a really good way of putting it especially when you've got the two 
relatively simple characters in in the way that they're drawn and then the single line and the, the point about perspective is really important because the gags in this they're just rapid fire like one of my favorite ones is when the line it's initially like a wall and then it's a ceiling so the bean person keeps banging its head on it and trying to figure out where the heck its dog is when the distance when the foreground background playing comes into effect and the bean person throws the ball and and the dog goes way into the background it disappears bean person comes way into the foreground but he remains relatively the same size like we're looking at it on a flat plane but when the dog finally reappears in the background its perspective is that it would become giant in the foreground and it freaks the little bean person out so like and those are just they keep coming like i love the exasperated look in the eyes of the bean person's face when the dog is traveling on the line and then it travels actually into and through the little bean person and on your looney tunes note the specific cartoon you're probably thinking about is duck amuck yes yeah when he's fighting against the animator and the animator turns out to be bugs and what i like about this is that it's not as winking you know it's not as self-referential for me and this is one of the highest praises i could probably give fetch is it's every bit an equal to duck amuck in its own way because i i like how it keeps itself self-contained it doesn't really wink to the audience much or talk to us or ask you know what's happening it still keeps the story and the conflict centered between the bean person and the dog which is what makes the resolution kind of beautiful i have pets and they sometimes drive me insane trying to figure out exactly what they're doing or why they're doing it and why they won't shut up or what they see that i'm not seeing and just the setting allows for that basic relationship between person and pet to play out in an absurd way but when you finally sit down and take a breath and let everything just kind of wash over you things can get quiet and you can be happy with your loved ones or your pets or whatever so that's why the end when um the bean person starts meditating and we get that sudden soundtrack shift with the lines becoming now circular instead of rigid or forming structures or anything like that. I just think it's beautiful. Like here's this moment. We're confused. It's hilarious to watch, but it can't go on forever. So we'll just see this as part of a cycle and then move on with our lives. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because the, the meditation took it to a completely different realm, which I didn't expect, but I actually loved it. Partly for some of the reasons you were talking about in terms of like bringing everything back and, and calming stuff down. But it was, it caused, it led me to watch another one of her shorts. Um, I think it was called, uh, Death of the, the First, Firstborn Egyptian. And even as we're going to see with Sita, the way how she infuses various cultural influences into her animation, I, I find very fascinating. Like she doesn't do it in a pretentious way, you know. It's very, it's almost very loving, and but just it, it's so effortlessly how she just kind of incorporates it. And that's the thing; she really respects history, and in her work, you can just see that in her work. Like I was actually pondering if I was going to listen to a talk of hers 
before we discussed it, but I wanted to keep some of the mystery intact and just discuss my reaction to it because there's that part in Fetch where the bean person is chasing the dog on one of those classic geometrically impossible figures. And within the context of the short, that works perfectly because, again, you've got all these rigid lines that keep changing the definition. But when we talk about her grasp of history, again, that's a, it's a classically impossible figure she's incorporating in such a way that it doesn't disrupt the flow of the short or call attention to itself in any way it's just another logical extension of this illogical world so with your short in my estimation it also does something profound in its relatively short like two minute runtime. so why don't you tell us a bit about yours the short film that i picked was dernier act um, also known as last act and i believe it's a graduate film by three female filmmakers, Daphne Chabray, uh, Cecile Perron, and Laura Hotot. Apologies if I mispronounce the name. As we know, even in 2017, my pronunciation is still terrible when it comes to, to names. <laughs> uh, but the, what caught me about this one, I was partly looking for short films by female directors, just to, to fit in with Nina Paley. But I liked that this film is basically about a theater that's going to be turned into a shopping mall. And I guess you have the one manager of the the theater pleading with the building owner to save it. And the building owner is pretty much being dismissive. So he has to try and sit the owner down and convince him why the theater and just theater in general is, is so important. And as the the short progresses, he has to find, I guess, more um, creative and, shall we say, darker ways to to convince the owner. And I like that the owner himself at the beginning is the prototypical villain. You know, he rubs his cigar butt into the, the theater seat, what have you, is dismissive. But by the end of it, I almost want to say I felt a little sorry for him with what was happening because I got the sense that the theater pretty much um, took care of him in ways that he did not want. And that's why I loved this because it's like a microcosm of how art works, be it theater, painting, or anything like that. Because the menacing aspects that you touched on tie in extremely well with the basic plot, that being that the theater is going to be replaced with a shopping mall. Because one of the through lines I really enjoyed was how art is a reminder of our fleeting existence here on Earth, regardless of what you believe. I mean, we're only here for so long. And the menace of it is that sometimes when you're talking to people about a movie or a song or a painting or something that isn't immediately mediated by language, they have trouble articulating just what it is that bothers them or how it is that that piece of art affected them. So the craft in your shorts, it seemed it was like, I don't want to say deceptive, but it was setting itself up for something grander because I enjoyed initially just on a purely aesthetic level of how the businessman seemed to be hastily and roughly thrown together 
out of clay. Like You can see the indentations in his face and kind of the rougher outlines of his cheekbones versus the smoother construction of the usher or the manager. So when we're following the manager as he is essentially tormented by art, those differences between the two, they start to fade, um, either because of the lighting or because the theater manager slash usher literally throws the businessman into darkness multiple times. And that's one of the beautiful things about watching movies or watching a play is that we're all sitting in the dark sharing an experience. It's one of the reasons I have trouble with people when they say you know, watching a movie at home is much better than watching a movie in the theater or watching a stage play and so on. Because, I mean, those shared experiences, that's almost, for some folks, all that we have. And the symbolism there of a shopping mall, which serves as a distraction. I mean, buying stuff and enjoying stuff serves as a distraction from our existence here. And then the theater itself, be it, you know, acting, musicals, movies, whatever, it's a constant reminder. And that menace, it just plays so well once the darkness sets in and those differences become smoothed over. And it's like, basically, we're here trying to make sense of the darkness. You're part of it. You can't escape it by buying stuff. Yeah, exactly. And I love, um, as you mentioned, the it talks about theater as a tool to remind society of, of its own mistakes. And I, I love that, oh, I guess, uh, manager, usher, whatever, he goes through not just the tragic aspects that come with theater, but talks about the great romance and the lives lost that still resonate with us. There's, there's many facets to it. Whereas if you think of something like a mall, yeah, you buy something and sometimes you put it down and a year later you pick it up and you don't even remember where you got it. Right, whereas we we all remember certain works, whether you love it or hate it. Romeo and Juliet is one of those iconic things that they reference in this one, and I've never been a fan of that play personally, but it's one that you mention the name, it takes you back to your feelings, whether good or bad, and I I really like that. And I one thing you talked about the animation and the stop motion, how the characters get almost become one in terms of their construction. I had noticed that too. It, I thought the the stop motion was really well done for this and again i'm watching this and if i hadn't read in the little synopsis earlier that it was a graduate film student film i would have wouldn't have never thought that there was a certain level of craft and detail to the work that was almost ahead of its time or at least ahead of the age that i'm assuming these um, filmmakers are and that's what struck me too because there's something primal about it that makes the menace at least for me it go down in a darkly smooth way like they managed to touch on something that a lot of first-time filmmakers or folks you know getting right out of the gate they just want to get their image out there you know this idea that they've had in their head this vision that they've had without really considering if that has a good idea backing it up and all of us disappearing into darkness to share a story together and how those stories won't go away if you build a shopping mall over this. It's it's extremely mature, and that's a word I, I try to avoid because we tend to associate maturity with age, and I don't agree with that at all. Um, but here, it, it's a very mature and self-aware idea that we're all in the dark together versus throwing up some kind of, you know, whimsical 
nonsense out there, but it just, it plays so well. And that primal connection, I felt really deeply watching it. Yeah. It's, it's one that I'm hoping that, um, these filmmakers will continue, whether they stick with animation or whatnot, but I'm, I'm really excited to see what they do next. It's always nice when we're doing these things that we talk about shorts that you come across one year, like, I, I really want to follow these filmmakers as they progress and just, Hopefully, they'll have some other stuff that we can talk about on this show. Which would bring us greatly to Nina Paley, I think, because when we talk about an expanding volume, we've already got one short, and, of course, the future link. <laughs> there's no shortage beyond that. Yeah, very true. So what we'll do is we'll take a moment to change reels, and then we're going to come back and talk about our feature film, Sita Sings the Blues. Okay, our feature film this week is Sita Sings the Blues, a 2008 animated film written, directed, produced, and animated by Nina Paley. The film intersperses events from the epic Hindu poem uh, Ramayana with the crumbling relationship of Paley's own marriage. The film features jazzy musical numbers, Indian shadow puppet narrators, and a rather inventive way to approach mythology. Uh, Andrew, do you want to elaborate more on why you want to discuss this film this week? There's a direct connection to a stupid bit of nonsense that happened recently where a collection of seven white cis male filmmakers were gathered together to talk about how they managed to avoid the stereotypes of women and princesses in their movies. And I really wanted this to be a direct repudiation of that because Nina Paley's Sita Sings the Blues has already freaking done that but beyond that flash in the pan moment that this could easily be a response to cita sings the blues is magnificent the whole reason that i even found it to begin with was someone just sent roger ebert a dvd of it when it was first released and nina paley is sort of an artist's artist as far as i'm concerned she has made see the sings the blues available for free to whoever wants to watch it and considering the respect that we talked about earlier for historical and animated influences it's almost impossible to decide where to start with those on Cita Sings the Blues, because if I was going to give someone any kind of description, you know, at its most basic level, it's a woman working through her relationship problems and eventual breakup with a man. Okay, easy enough. But how do I segue in that it features a very minorly known, like, 20s jazz singer in bubbly Betty Boop-esque cartoon images and then cutouts, basically, and hieroglyphic talking narrators it boggles the mind just how much goes into cita sings the blues i think i may have entered my double digits watching cita sings the blues this time because every time i watch it i'm caught completely off guard by the jokes and the music and it's because it's so experimental but it structured so well i don't remember specifically what happens when no matter how many times i've watched it so there's a degree of spontaneity to it that makes every viewing feel completely fresh and i, I just I, I adore her work so i figured man if there's any time to talk about see this things the blues now is it there's a lot going on in this film um 
I definitely want to talk about the whole giving it away for free, but that's a separate discussion we can, we can get to to later. But I really enjoyed this film. The first time I watched it, I didn't realize that it was directly related to um, Paley's own personal life. Watching it again, that part resonated a little more because... If I could be honest, the first time I watched it, as much as I loved it, I actually thought the, I guess the real life parallels were the least interesting to me. Just because I was having so much fun following this mythology and history and learning about Rama. But also the narration is so delightful that whenever they had a moment of pause and went back to the real world, I was like, no, no, I don't need the real world. Give me these narrators. Like, I, I, I kind of wish more films that talked about historical things, took this approach where you have narratives who are um, a conversation, you know, a conversational style, but also infuse it with humor. And it just, it really felt like I was sitting in, um, listening to a group of people recount history and as they're recounting, trying to negotiate what parts of the history were true how many wives did someone actually have what was the proper name of so and so like that stuff was was magical so watching it on a second time knowing that it was about paley i was like okay i paid a little more attention to how that part of the narrative interwove with the entire film but on first view i would have just been fine listening to these people recite all types of history to me See, these styles of animation, that's what's important when we take the, the quote-unquote real-world stuff into account. Uh, because one of the quick sly jabs that I really appreciated in the moments where we get outside glimpses of the real world versus inside, or when we're in the mythological structure, um, when the mythological characters get to speak of their own struggles without it being filtered through song or through those wonderful narrators, is in the real-life sections, I liked how messy everything was. And while it seemed to be, you know, routine stuff, uh, the kind of like hastily scrabbled-together line work contrasted with when we see, like, outside the house. (laughs) And one of my favorite little sight gags of what looks like a woman and her baby cut out of a magazine, and you've got almost like this kid playing with it appeal of um, the woman and the baby kind of almost dancing in a static image down the street. And I liked how that paralleled with the stories speaking for themselves, because they're both kind of idealized versions that embrace the mythology. In the real world, we've got the embrace of a good life, like on the outside, everything could look picture perfect. But then when we look at the inside, it's scraggly and lined. And the same thing applies to the, the mythological segments. You know, when the characters get to speak for themselves, they're like these immaculately cut dolls that represent, you know, the mini headed Ravana or uh, Sita's beautiful frame with her goddess powers. But then when we get into the world and we're actually telling the story in action, those mythologies, those stories, they're mediated by what culture we're consuming them in. And that's why Nina Paley's decision to set the score of the myth in action to the Betty Boop style animation, along with the Annette Henshaw score, worked really well 
for me from the first viewing on when you compare it to the real world stuff because there's always how the myth maybe the creators want it to appear on the outside and the real world how we want it to appear on the outside versus the inside of the myth which is always going to change depending on when you consume it and what you're listening to and the real life the messy squiggly drawings and sometimes the mundane aspects of just getting by I'd read a review in researching this film, and they were talking about how the music was distracting. It was actually the least interesting thing of this film. And I, I disagree with that, because I found using the jazzy tunes of, what was it, Annette Hanshaw to be yep. rather brilliant in terms of not only bringing, a, I guess, an easy way to bring North American sensibilities into Hindu mythology, but the songs fit perfectly with the flow of the film and the different aspects of Sita's life at that time of that particular song. And I thought it also worked well with the animation because in those moments, that's when we see Rama as like this big buff dude who every arrow can't miss. Whereas the times where we're just getting regular dialogue and stuff, then you get the more almost, I don't want to say traditional um, and a, animation because there's really yeah. nothing traditional in this film. I don't film. think there's anything traditional. Yeah. But no, the not so cartoonish interpretations of him when he is like, you know, he's very slender and you, you get to see more detail with Sita. Even when they're talking about, there's a great moment they're talking about how um, they found Sita after she was kidnapped because she left a trail of jewelry and you, <laughs> yes. and the way how they 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 animate the various amounts of jewelry and whether or not she had jewelry like i i don't know it was just a really it was all really inventive in it and it worked well like i found uh, for me per se i'd say if i had one issue with the film it's that the in- intermission which i love in concept and i love for the first few seconds but when they went the full Two fifty minutes. For me, the film kind of starts to teeter a bit after that, just because you're now cramming in a whole bunch of different musical styles and musical numbers. But and I felt like the pretty much the crux of the film comes before the intermission in terms of the story. I know you still have to do the dealing with the demise, but I guess that would be my own personal qualm with the film. But it wasn't enough for me to not revisit this countless times moving forward. (laughs) Yeah, I'm gonna do the strong disagreement thing on the intermission because I I think that she took and your reaction is understandable because I do think she took a big risk kind of disrupting the flow of her own movie by adding that intermission at the same time there's a lot of amusing gags in the intermission like the (laughs) the little eyeball squiggly leech things floating off screen to go get candy and float back and how all the bad guys and good guys are kind of broing it up backstage, like with Ravana and Rama going together. And I wouldn't trade anything for <laughs> Ravana and his seven, nine heads all sipping Coke and burping at once. But the gag parts aside, one of the reasons that I admire that she put that in and allowed that breathing moment is the most emotionally devastating scene of Cedar Sings the Blues happens immediately afterward and also one of the most amazing shifts in animation for a movie that has so many spectacular animation shifts because after an intermission 
we're mentally prepared to casually go back into a movie or be eased back into the movie. So it kept its charm. It kept the jokes in that break. But the very first scene that we get to when we come back is Nina getting that terrible email, just don't come back. And then like the extra dagger, love Dave. And the first time I watched this, the second time I watched this up until now, which I'm just going to go ahead and say is the 10th time I've watched this. It's hard for me to say the exact point. My heart completely breaks with her when that beautiful Cetus fire song starts and the animation which to that point had been different kinds of figures is now rotoscoped and you've got the skin dancing with the bones, dancing with the naked heart and dancing with the image of herself or whoever the dancer is unable to get herself together. And that song, especially Cetus fire is just an amazing composition. Like when I watched this, for the first time years ago, it was one of the first times that I had to hunt down the song itself so I could buy it properly and just listen and listen and listen. So I understand what you're saying with the intermission. It is kind of an odd break. But at the same time, if it just went straight from that cartoon sequence to the real life to the Cetus fire moment, I don't think it would have hit nearly as hard and I admire that Paley took that breath to make sure that when that moment did happen, it just thuds and thuds and thuds. And it's like, this is heartache. I think my issue with the intermission is more the length of it in relation to the length of the film. Like it's, it's one thing if you're doing a nod to like Bollywood films and if the film was longer, I'd be fine with the whole two minutes 50. But I thought when it first started, it was great. Great sight gag and stuff. And then it just kind of kept going. It's like, oh, but this film isn't really that long. This film is about an hour and a half. And I, I still think that scene afterward, which I admittedly is a fantastic scene. For me, it still would have hit with the same emotion had that intermission been shorter. It was just like, like, you know, you're so caught up in it, you're so into the whole tale and everything that's going on, and then it's like, oh, okay, we're we're going to wait for the full, oh, all right. And then by the time we kick back in, you get that great moment, and then you've got the Sita singing by the riverside, and, and her, basically her version of what we saw before in that, as you mentioned, great score moment. And then I was like, oh, okay, now I'm trying to get back into that mindset and rhythm, but I've already been taken out of it a little bit. So that's where it came with the, the intermission. And again, it's a minor, minor quibble for me. Everything else I thought was wonderful. The notion of giving it for free though, I found this was interesting because if I understand correctly, there was some copyright issues over the song or some of the songs that were being used. And that was probably what was that one of the catalysts why she ended up having to give it away for free. As near as I can tell, it wasn't from financial issues, because even Ebert in his first review for it made note of how she's just given it away for free. And that's been Paley's, not trademark exactly, but that's been her f philosophy from the very start of her work, like with Fetch, when we discussed earlier, to her more recent animations and one of her extremely detailed historical accounts set to an Israeli patriotism anthem, This Land is Mine, 
which if you want to see something that is exhaustingly researched in addition to criticizing heavily the history it is researching, that that's another short to get out there. But it's just an extension of her philosophy, less so than it is a copyright problem with Hanshaw's work. Okay, that's because that's where I was getting um, confused in terms of how this film was being distributed and stuff. Because I know I know you had mentioned that you can go to her site and there's a part where you can make donations. But I was watching this film, I was like, and she's giving this away for free? This doesn't seem right, you know? Like <laughs> this is one of those things you're supposed to go to the theater and see. But okay. And I got to do that, and it was wonderful. Oh really? Um, they played. Yeah, back in uh, Illinois when I was living there for about a decade and a half, the normal theater there, they would do their Beyond Normal showcase where they would basically add a seasonal cycle where they would play stuff like Christmas Carol and uh, Christmas Story. You know, they do seasonally appropriate stuff. And then their Beyond Normal film showcase would be the more indie fair that would draw folks in. Like I saw Precious there. I saw Goodbye Solo there. Great place. And I got... Man, I got to see Cedar Sings the Blues there, and I was just in heaven the entire time. And you're, I, I don't, I guess kind of suspicions maybe that, that you bring up about the, the free aspect of the work. I think that's normal because we so often expect people who make these tremendous works of art to get some kind of or expect some kind of compensation for it. Like how many articles this year have, or the last year and for many years now, I'm glad that we're becoming aware of this. Have we been talking about Johnny Depp's salary compared to Jennifer Lawrence's or Brad Pitt's compared to Angelina Jolie's? And like, we're, we're always comparing the monetary value. So I don't mean that like as a criticism of you or anything, but I think it's so, you know, ingrained into our mindset that if someone's going to release something this tremendous for free, either there was a problem or there was a financial implication to it. And in this case, no, she just wants us all to have her work. And that's just beautiful. Well, I think for, for me, I was approaching it more from a place of, I guess, entitlement, whereas we, in the sense that we are a society now that expects everything to be for free especially when it comes to film and whatnot like i've seen people complain on social media that they they weren't able to find this film to download illegally and it's like wait that's you're complaining that you couldn't steal a, a film like i you know <laughs> that's that's what i was thinking so i was normally when you see works like this like artists are usually like i'm doing this thing i've put a lot of effort in it would be great if you could support the arts opposed to just expecting things for free so to have an artist come out and say no this is for free that's why i was just like wait a minute that seems so strange it's part of nina paley's beauty and i suppose just to shift things back more toward the beauty and one of the reviews that you had talked about earlier criticizing the musical choices that is so freaking dumb the worst thing you could say about the musical choices is that they maybe comment too directly on what's going on, but they're integrated so wonderfully. Like the sequence when <laughs> Rama's monkey servant and the monkey servant was born into existence specifically to one day run into Rama and serve him, which is another thing that the narrators take a little bit of issue with and then just say, okay, we've got to go for it. But that who's that knocking at my door? 
I love the way that she integrates in Ed Henshaw's vocal tics, along with the story of who is this monkey trying to rescue me? Putting yourself in Sita's situation, that's one of the things that the music does so well. Like, who is this monkey burning things down, trying to take me from my relative safety here in Ravana's Fortress of Doom? And I also love that the narrator's have a, a nice fluid grasp of morality when they say that Ravana was a just king who worshipped the right gods, but he really, really liked Sita. And that was that was the end of it. But like the who's that knocking at my door sequence? I love the last little falsetto part when Sita, as the monkey is flying away with its tail on fire, is like, whoo, and her eyes are just fluttering so quickly. It's one of those moments where I'm like, how can you not love this? Like, how? It's so charming and it works so well with everything. This is one of those movies I haven't gone out of my way to read reviews on because I don't think that I could stomach any criticism for it because of how wonderfully like that sequence and the others are put together. If we can jump back a minute for something you just said there about the morality of the narratives. That's one of the things I found really interesting about this film because there are as much as the Sita Rama story is about unconditional love of a woman and male ego and misplaced pride, listening to the narrators discuss and debate that was very amusing. Because, as you mentioned, there's that moment where they basically say the villain was a great guy outside of the fact that he just kidnapped this woman. He should be even commended that he never even defiled the woman. He just kidnapped her. And th- there's a moment um, where they are debating about the nature of unconditional love. And the men are like, ah, you know, technically Sita has some faults because she should have really just left. Like, you know, if you're with a guy who doesn't care for you, you, you just pick up and leave. And the woman's trying to say, but, you know, there's a thing called unconditional love. And they're being very dismissive to her, just as Rama is being dismissive to Sita. I-, I-, I love that kind of interplay that was going on. And that's where I'm curious about the background on the narration portions. And again, I want to keep as much of the mystery intact as possible, but I'm curious about it because there was some genuine condensation and it's weird saying genuine in something like this, but the narration, it really did feel like it was just a conversation. And I love that the woman narrator there was speaking up and really her dismissal of them being dismissal of her was perfect. It's like, well, that's what unconditional love is. What, do you want me to define it for you even more? It gave attention to the narration, which you don't see very much. And the narration with the woman especially, it helps reframe everything that's going on by, in a very quiet way, asking the audience, whether they're men or women or whatever, to look at the story from the woman's perspective. There's that portion where one of the narrators says over not a screen of the myth, but over a screen of Nina's squiggly drawn in version that he says, you got to let it go at some point, but it still shifts back to Nina's perspective or Sita's perspective. And again, why these songs from Annette Henshaw work so well, because she's singing about, heartbreak and hope from a woman's perspective so there's some great gags in the narration too but that tension when they're talking i'm really curious about that to see if it was just a spontaneous conversation that she then animated because those moments those when she's basically telling the guys guys you got to look at this from sita's perspective or 
in the whole context of the movie, Sita slash Nina's perspective and adjust your own outlook in order to really understand what's going on. Yeah, there's a there's a moment early on in the film where um, one of the the narratives when they're talking about, I guess, Rama being sent away from his home and the king at the time just kind of being true to his word. And one of the narratives says all Indian men are true to their word. And the female narrative comes in really quick with a, a very sarcastic yes that <laughs> just kind of sat with me for a bit. I was like, huh, like, you know, that was really well placed. And when I was watching initially, I was thinking, well, this was just really well written, really smartly written. Now you're putting that seed in my head of, well, maybe she, she did just get a conversation. I still think they're actors reading a script, but it would be interesting to see if it was all just in the dialogue and how they did delivered, or was it something that they workshopped, and then she said, all right, well, let me add that into it as well. That, that would be very interesting to find out. You know, that would add to the multi-influential aspect of Cedar Sings the Blues, because that's a very Mike Lee thing to do. The director of Happy Go Lucky and, and Naked, where he workshops his scripts months with the characters and asks them to live in their roles with him while he works out the visuals to match the characters in their head. So it still feels so spontaneous to me that it is a conversation that... She eventually animated, but either's a possibility, and I, I think I'm going to continue my willing ignorance on that because I want to keep as much of the movie a mystery in my head as I can. To that note, more on the narrators. How about those background gags going on every time they're talking? Because we were discussing the moment with the sarcastic, yeah, that occurs around when the king is dying, or they think that the king is dying, or he has this big dramatic spiel, and in the background the entire time, the king has the X's over his eyes, but then they're like, no, he didn't die yet, and he pops back up. And then, no, no, he, he was dead, pops back down with the eyes, and then it eventually becomes the king just kind of standing there and then laying there looking confused while the narrators try and decide if he's dead or not. Yeah, I love that. And there was that moment, um, I think also with the king, where they're talking about the reason why he was keeping his word to this woman is because she had nursed him back to health. And you see the background, the body changes to, I guess, what we'd consider like a North American Halloween slash stripper type nurse costume like just completely out of random <laughs> you know not in context with what you would expect that particular setting and that culture just moments like that i thought were really great and one thing i liked about the narrator i like the fact that she casted indian actors or indian american actors to be the narrators because so often you get animated films that will focus on a particular culture and you pretty much just got traditionally white male sometimes white female voice actors doing all the work and there was something nice that this american woman went out and got actors from that culture to play these roles well we've had a lot of conversation about that too recently because of apu from the simpsons and aziz ansari having that huge discussion in master of none about was it Short Circuit, the the doctor from Short Circuit? Yeah, so, and I also like that by actually, you know, having people of the culture or of the race discuss it, it actually (laughs) makes me feel a little better about our pronunciation issues at times. Because in another great background gag, when they're trying to figure out the names 
of some of these characters. They stumble and they stumble and they stumble. And I think it's when they're discussing Ravana's name and they end up going through like 10 different iterations that all keep getting listed in the background. So it's another thing about perspective. So much of the movie asks us to consider this from someone else's perspective. And I like that moment with the narrators, with the misspellings and such, because it's like, you know, we expect folks to be perfect representations of their own culture or language or whatever. You know, that's one of the things we're grappling with greatly in America right now. It's like, oh, why don't all Muslims apologize at once and shit like that? But here it's like they're not perfect. They don't quite grasp all this stuff either. And one of the narrators even multiple times says that I think it's one of the men that he doesn't even really believe in this stuff. And he mentions it a few times because he's the one who chimes in most often to get the full correct pronunciation in. And that goes to another big cultural thing where the non-believers who used to believe tend to be the most knowledgeable of the religion they no longer believe in. And that's a universal thing. If you were to sit me down as devoutly Christian as I once was and ask me what were the names of all of Jesus's apostles, I'd be screwed. I would have no idea. <laughs> like like John, Paul, uh, Peter, Ringo to do the old joke. Just that uncertainty of the names and then the one narrator just saying, you know, I'm not even sure I believe in this. It makes the whole story that much more universal in addition to the Annette Henshaw songs and so on. Yeah. And that's one thing that I really like about this film and one that hopefully more people will see, or at least I should say those who haven't seen it yet will go and see is that this film really works well, no matter what your cultural background is. It's everyone's going to identify with the tale of unconditional love and relationships falling apart. It's just, you're going to get some great musical numbers, some great comedy and eye popping animation. And on the comedy and animation note, one of the things I absolutely adored about Paley's animation here is how violent it is. We're used to, to bring it back to the Looney Tunes comparison, you know, when someone gets shot, their eyes will ring up gone fishing or they'll have X's or so on. And that does happen in the sort of puppetry sequences in the myth segments. But in the musical sequences, so many things are exploding into blood and body parts and death everywhere. And it's another just tacit acknowledgement of how these myths, we tend to misremember them and they were extremely violent. And the contrast between that and the sweet songs of the eye creatures being detached and their blood going everywhere or the weird demon monkey things, uh, the Rakshanas. I think they were called them <laughs> also going into bloody chunks. It goes back to what you're saying about how there's a little something for everybody in here because it's so charming and it's so sweet and it's all innocent Betty Boopy and then, oh my God, everything is blood. But even in the blood, it's done in such a candy-coated, delightful way that thinking back, I'm like, oh yeah, I guess it was really well. Yeah, there was a whole bunch of, there was an entire army that got beheaded. Oh well, you know, because you, you don't even register it. Like, it's just like, oh yeah, that's... That happened, but it's it's still done in such a delightful way that you don't walk away feeling scarred or jaded. You're just like, oh, that was a great lesson in history. <laughs> <laughs> and it 
goes to show how something cartoons get frequently dismissed as stuff for kids. I don't think it's as big a thing now as it used to be, but keeping you in with those old cultural ties, some of the initial Warner Brothers and Merry Melodies and Looney Tunes cartoons were extremely dark. You had stalking and murder and suicide and child abandonment. and You could go down a list of terrible things that happened, but because uh, like here, as you mentioned, with the candy coated, it almost looks like little oddly shaped Jolly Rancher drops popping out of them. It's, it's just a reminder that in terms of Nina Paley grasping that animation history, you know, she can go into some really deep spots and violent spots. And because of how she animates it, when you realize it, you're caught off guard or you're just delighted the entire time. She did a film recently, which I didn't realize she was part of. I guess it was an anthology film that Selma Hayek had produced. And I'm very interested now to, to try and track down that film and see how she approaches that. And I guess the type of story that's told in that one, if it's going to be another one that has action in it or if it's more of a, a straightforward one. But yeah, she's a very fascinating filmmaker. I'm going to have to check that out because uh, Sylvain Chaumet, who we may have to visit as part of this podcast, because his films that I've seen, The Triplets of Bavel and The Illusionist, are phenomenal. But he also did a, a live action short for the anthology series Paris Jetem. And while the quality overall of the, the Paris Jetem shorts was scattershot, that was one of the ones that I deeply remember because it was great seeing how his eccentric animated sensibilities tied in with a live action setting. And it didn't change that much And with someone as endlessly creative and just restless in her work as Nina Paley is here. I, I've got, yeah, that one I've got to track down. Yeah, it's I think the background information I'll keep uh, myself unaware of. But yeah, what's it called? Uh, this one's called The Prophet, and I guess it came out in 2014. She's one of eight directors, and another director there is Bill Plimpton in it. And it was produced oh. by uh, Selma Hayek, and she's one of the voices in it. Liam Neeson's in it. John Krasinski's in it. It's got a pretty tight cast, Alfred Merlina. And it looks like it's the story of exiled poet Mustafa and he embarks on a journey home with his housekeeper and her daughter. That sounds like something I need to be watching soon. So yeah, we <laughs> if anything, add it to our must-see list and possible future film to discuss on the show list. Yeah, maybe even more discussion there as well. And man, look, I don't know if she would listen to this. I, I hope that she would. But for the listeners and for potentially Nina Paley, I love her to death. I've never met her. Still haven't listened to her talks on Cedar Sings the Blues or anything like that. But just the philosophy that comes through and her distribution, her short work, her feature film work, her creativity, just her obvious love for culture, period, no matter where it comes from and trying to put it in context that everyone can find something to relate to. That is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I adore every aspect of her work. Obviously, we'll put up the shorts that we've discussed of hers here today. I'll even throw in a link for the This Land is Mine so you can see how dark and well historically researched she can get. But I, I man, it doesn't get much better than Nina Paley. 
Uh, we also include a link to See to Sings the Blues since it's available for free online, and I guess a, a link to where you can donate to the film if you feel like supporting the cause. Please donate. I mean, heck, man, just donate a copy of it and use it on a projection or anything so people can join in with you and laugh because this is a rare opportunity. She's a rare artist. I, in one of those rare moments, got to see it on a big screen. It is amazing on a big screen. I mean, it's even amazing on a small screen, but really, the music, the animation, the love, the heartache, share this with people and donate to Nina Paley. <laughs> and as you know, that's a perfect place to end. Andrew, where can folks find you? Well, I am at Twitter at Can't Stop Drew, and I check our email at changing.reels.ac at gmail.com. So if you want to throw us a line there with a suggestion or even tweet to me directly, please do so. Courtney, how about yourself? Um, you can reach me on Twitter at SmallMind. Uh, you can also reach us on Twitter at ChangingReelsAC. And hopefully by time the next episode rolls around, we'll probably have a Facebook page. I mean, I guess we've done 10 episodes. We should probably get on <laughs> one of those. You know, we like to do things a little slowly, the whole social media and all that stuff but also you know what check us out on itunes give us a rating whether or not you like the show tell your friends you can hear us on soundcloud stitcher and of course the fine folks at modern superior you can find us there so plenty of ways to get a hold of us please do we want to hear from you we want to hear your suggestions and if you want to gush about nina paley with me i'm always open for that awesome so for changing reels i'm courtney small and I'm Nina Paley's number one fan, Andrew Hathaway. All right. Thank you for listening. This has been a presentation of the Modern Superior Media Network.